Well, good morning. It is really good to see you. Glad you're with us this morning. Decided to be here. It is our desire here at Christ Central to be a welcoming and inviting community uh, to all people. So if you're here this morning and you're sure of your faith in Christ or you're unsure uh, of your faith in Christ, if you're certain about Jesus or you're skeptical and you're questioning Jesus and Christianity, we're glad you're here. At the same time, we are a church that holds unwaveringly to the truth claims of Orthodox Christianity. And I realize that there are many people who hold to the truth claims of Orthodox Christianity and are far from being welcoming and inviting. So I pray that you'll see and hear this morning why we believe we can and we should be both. We're in our third week of a series called Barriers to Belief attempting to address the common barriers and questions that cause people, believer and unbeliever, to doubt the validity of Christianity. The barrier that we are addressing this morning is one of the biggest. Many might feel that this is the biggest problem with Christianity, often the most asked question, and it's this. Is there really only one true religion? It's the problem of exclusivity. We're going to look at John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6 this morning. If you're able, as our custom, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to read God's word to us. It says God's word to us this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would come and speak to us. Thank you that the Word of God is living and active. And so I pray that you would remove me, the preacher, so that Christ could be exalted. I pray that our minds would be illumined and engaged and our hearts affected, that we might leave this place different, willing to walk and live in a different way. I pray that... You speak now, Holy Spirit, to our spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, Jesus says in John chapter 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. Sounds extremely arrogant to say there's only one way, and it's Jesus. The exclusivity of this claim can feel dangerous. Religious conviction that claims it holds the truth foster superiority. It can lead to privileging your group over others. Claims like this make religion a divisive force in our world. Peace and unity threatened when religion says that it has the one truth. This is the argument that many people have against Christianity. Perhaps you have against Christianity. And I have to say that I agree with some of these concerns and accusations. Religion has led to division and often leads to arrogance within people. 
And because of this, uh, one of the main reasons, I think, our culture now has a prevailing thought that's existed for at least the past 60 years, that, and it can be summed up in what the founder of the Beatles, John Lennon, said in 1966. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about it. I am right and will be proved right. One way to state the vision of our current society is the title of a website, A Good Life Without God. A site focused on convincing people that the best life is a life without religion. The website argues that without religious influence, we will finally be able to achieve, now listen to this vision, that we will finally be able to achieve a tolerant, open society with mutual respect and equality for all people, no one view of the universe, but lots of views, all people realizing their potential. A life without God, based on science, reason, and evidence alone, is what's called secularism. It has been the dominant worldview for many years now in our country. And secularism has advanced here. I can remember in 1995 visiting college campuses, looking where I might go to school, and I visited one, one campus on a Sunday and saw the majority of students dressed up going to church. Now, granted, it was the South. And I could tell for those who didn't go to church, they were walking the walk of shame. Kinda, they, were try, they were kind of embarrassed that they weren't going to church. Now, the idea that Sunday is a church day is long gone, especially in Durham. You do realize that most Durhamites find it odd that we're here on a Sunday morning. Seems like Christianity is in decline. I mentioned two weeks ago the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who are unaffiliated with religion that are increasing in our country and increasing in Durham. 76% of Durham's population does not affiliate with any religion. That's true. But what I did not say is that there has been and is an increase in those who are religiously devout. The decline is in churches that hold loosely to the tenets of Orthodox Christian faith. But the churches that hold tightly to Orthodox historic faith while being on God's mission to the world are increasing. This type of Christianity holding to the truth while loving the world is exploding globally. Did you know that there are more Christians in China at church on a Sunday morning than in all of Europe? Did you know that in 1910 there were 12 million Christians in Africa and today there are 650 million Christians? Christianity is not vanishing, it's not going away, instead it's growing and increasing. So the question is, religious pluralism and secularism, this belief that there's no ultimate truth, that each religion is one among many, many religions equally valid, is this the best way forward? Now, it might seem like it is, but I want to suggest that it's not. Even if you're not a Christian, I don't think it's the best alternative. I don't think it's even logically consistent to hold this view. This belief that all roads lead to the same destination, all trails converge at the top of the same mountain. You have to ask yourself, what's the destination? Which mountaintop are we talking about? Which God is there? No God? Thousands of gods? Allah, Jehovah, Jesus? 
different faiths believe different things. All major religions believe that they have different destinations. It's the truth. They don't agree that their destinations are the same. Not only is there a difference in destination, there's a difference in the base of the mountain, or you could say the doctrines of each religion. When I was doing campus ministry at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, we hosted something called a trialogue. I brought in one of my former seminary professors who had a PhD from Harvard, Dr. Richard Pratt, and we had a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam. And for the first 45 minutes of this event, it was nice and calm. Everyone was talking about peace in the world, a love for people, this common hope. But then the whole night changed when they started asking questions about doctrine. What do you think about the prophet Muhammad? And then it really heightened when you started drilling in on who is Jesus. The Jewish view, he's a teacher. Muslim view, he's a prophet. The Christian view, he is the savior of the world. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus calls God my father. In Judaism or Islam, no one calls the creator dad, much less my dad. All of the major religions hold to specific doctrines and to a specific final destination. They agree they're different. They're not the same. And so to be intellectually honest, we have to say the same thing. Which leads me to this statement. To hold to the unity of all religions, the belief that all roads lead to the same destination, requires faith just as much as Christianity requires faith. Secularism, the view that there's no God, that we base life on science, reason, and evidence, requires faith as much as Christianity requires faith. Every person holds to a belief in why we exist and what people are for. As a result, every person has to ask this question, do my beliefs square with reality? A few years ago, I read a book, maybe some of you read it, called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. Kalanithi was a young neurosurgeon who is now deceased, and he wrote about his journey back towards faith while dying with cancer. Kalanithi, in his own words, was an ironclad atheist. His primary charge against Christianity was its failure of empirical grounds. He said, surely enlightened reason offered a more coherent cosmos, a scientific worldview. But he started having problems with this conception. It became evident to him that if everything is scientific, this banishes not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning, a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. And he argues all science can do is reduce phenomena into manageable units, make claims about matter and energy. For example, science can explain love and meaning as a chemical response in your brain. But if we assert, which virtually everyone does, that love, meaning, and morals do not merely feel real but are actually real, Science cannot support that. So he concluded, scientific knowledge is inapplicable to the central aspects of human life. Things like love, hope, beauty, honor, and virtue. Made him rethink his whole life. And for him, in this search, it was no longer unreasonable to believe in God. Kalanithi came to believe. Everybody has faith. 
Secularism is a faith. Pluralism is a faith. Christianity is a faith. And the central claim to Christianity is there's only, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just a teacher of the truth. He's not just a truth of many truths. He is the truth, the source of all that is. So how do we move forward? So I want to point out two things this morning. Two, two points with three subpoints under each. The first, the objections to saying there's one true way. My second point, the uniqueness of the way of Jesus. Let's look first at the objections to saying there's one true way. The first is arrogance. I've already said that religion can and does divide. In its claim of exclusivity, it can produce arrogance. Truth by its very nature is exclusive. It's impossible to deny, to deny truth without affirming it. Those who say there is no truth are saying the truth is this. So I don't think truth is arrogant. It's more often than not the manner by which how one communicates the truth that's the problem. Every one of us could rattle off a number of people who claim to be Christians who come across as smug, condescending, and arrogant. Confession, I've been one of these Christians. For those of you who are not Christians and you've encountered professing Christians in this way, I'm sorry. Sorry, it is not the truth that is the problem. It is the carrier of the truth and the manner in which they proclaim it. I will say that those who hold the truth, that there is no truth. See what I just did? Those who hold to the truth that there is no truth or that secularism is the truth and way forward are equally as exclusive in their truth claim. Every claim excludes or else nothing is false. People who believe this can be just as arrogant, just as condescending towards people who do not agree with them. So let me just say to those of you who are Christians, how matters. How you talk to people is as important as the message you speak. Here's the second objection. People can only see part, not the whole. The objection is for Christians to claim the whole truth, it's impossible because you can only see part, not the whole. Well-used analogy, maybe you've heard it, is of three blind men and an elephant. It goes like this. Three blind men are walking along, and they all three bump into an elephant. The first blind man describes the elephant. It's long and flexible like a snake. He's holding the trunk. The second blind man describes the elephant. It's thick and it's round. He's holding a leg. third blind man describes the elephant. It's large and it's flat, and he's touching the side. And the argument from this analogy is no one could envision the whole elephant, only part. So it is with religion. No one can claim comprehensive vision, just part. That's a compelling analogy. It's a compelling analogy, but I will say that Christianity does not claim to see all the truth. It merely claims to see the one who holds all the truth. And in this analogy, how can we know that the blind men are only seeing part? unless someone sees the whole picture. See, it sounds humble to say this, but the person who does so is claiming that others only see part while they see the whole. 
proclaiming their view superior to every other religion in the world, which can be quite arrogant. If no one knows the whole, how can you know? You're claiming to know what others do not. Now, some will say that people are conditioned to believe certain things, that Daniel Mason is a Christian because I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is in the Bible Belt. Or that the person who grew up in Morocco is a Muslim because they grew up in Morocco with a Muslim family. But the same could be said for religious pluralism or secularism. The person who grew up in Morocco is not a secularist either. So we have to apply the logic across the board to every belief and worldview. Christianity as well as religious pluralism and secularism. Cannot say that claims about religion are conditioned by history and environment, except the one I'm making now. Got to apply logic across the board. Here's the third objection. Christians should just keep their religion private and not bring it into the public square. It's okay to worship Jesus or Allah or Buddha, but keep it private. There should be no effort for conversion to Christianity. One should not allow their faith to influence what they do in the public, their job, their voting, their policies. Let's just all focus and agree on how we move forward with things like education in our city or how we can address poverty and racism and homelessness. But don't bring Christianity into these issues. But it is not possible to leave religion behind when entering these world issues. With faith, there is no Switzerland. There is no neutral ground. We're all being formed by our beliefs and by our faith in something. It is impossible to be completely open-minded about public issues like education and poverty because some view of what the world is for and what people are for is shaping how you think about these issues. It is impossible when you really think about what religion actually is. Religion is more than just a set of doctrines. Religion is the controlling narrative of one's life. Religion is the belief of why we exist and what people are for. And I've said this many times, every person is controlled by some narrative. And this leads me to my second and last point, to make a case for the narrative of Christianity and why I think Christianity offers a unique way that brings great hope for our world. Here's my first point underneath the unique way of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus produces humble people. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus, who was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. God became flesh, and not only did he become flesh, he died for us so that we might have life. The Bible tells us that we are to have the same mind as Christ, the same love as Christ. Christianity is the call to live upside down. And in a culture that is founded upon power, it is sometimes hard to be a Christian who walks in true humility, who surrenders and gives away power. Christianity says in Matthew 16, whoever will save his life shall lose it. In Matthew 20, that the last will be first. In Mark 10, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. 2 Corinthians, power is made perfect in weakness. In Philippians, the things that were gained, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I love the old Puritan prayer. Praise, let me learn by paradox 
that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. When you see Christians who really get the gospel, their lives have the aroma of Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. How can a church in Charleston, South Carolina, Emmanuel Amy, have a wicked, racist walk into a prayer meeting, and they welcome him like their own, and at the end of a meeting, he guns down nine people, and then they respond with forgiveness. A nation stunned and marveled at such a response of love and forgiveness. How can Coptic Christians in Egypt have their churches blown up by ISIS and then respond with grace and mercy? Humble people, saved by faith in a God who humbled himself and gave his life away on a cross. Here's the second way Christianity is unique. The resurrection of Jesus produces healing people. Not just humble people, but healing people. Three weeks ago, we celebrated at Easter the resurrection of Jesus, which was the inauguration, Jesus' resurrection, the inauguration of a new kingdom, a new order. You realize that the vision of Christianity is not heaven, some faraway place in the sky that when we die, we all float up and live on a cloud for the rest of our lives. The vision of Christianity is a whole new world, a new kingdom where everything is transformed into glory. Pluralism and secularism, they don't have this vision of transformation, but we do because we believe in a God who will resurrect our bodies and the physical world will be transformed and made new. And this vision should compel us to be a people who bring healing to the world. We don't just sit around and grind and work, work, work with the hope of retiring someday and spending the rest of our lives on ourselves until we die and pass to the other side and flow up, float up into a cloud for all of eternity. No. We work till the day we die to bring healing to the whole world because Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. I have a friend here locally who was able to retire years ago in his 50s. He could have bought a vacation home on the coast of North Carolina and spent the rest of his life on the beach. He decides to enroll at NCCU's law school so that upon graduation, he can engage in justice issues like affordable housing and mass incarceration and education with legal power and legal knowledge. A few weeks ago, 60 Minutes produced a powerful segment with Oprah Winfrey and Brian Stevenson. I don't know if you saw it. You should try to go watch it. Stevenson's a Christian lawyer in Montgomery, Alabama, who started Equal Justice Initiative, also authored the book Just Mercy. Stevenson and the initiative built a very large museum in Montgomery, Alabama, which is the heart of much of racism in our country. And this museum is to display the history of lynching for African Americans. It was powerful to, to see the individual names and stories and statues all on display to make you feel the weight of homicide through lynching. Stephen said in this segment that he, he doesn't want us to forget the history and, th and that he wants to bring healing in the midst of such horrific tragedy and the way that that can happen is you have to tell the truth of what really happened. Two Christians 
who are diving in and making a difference, bringing healing to a world filled with injustice and hatred and violence. The resurrection produces people who seek healing in this world. For Jesus dove into the depth of the grave. The Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell, and then on the third day he rose in power to redeem and heal all that is broken in this world. Here's the third thing that makes Christianity a unique way. Grace. A grace that produces an inclusive people. You realize in Christianity we don't outperform others to secure God's love. We don't outdo people. We don't do a little more good than bad. We're not better than anyone else. Christianity is radical grace, which means radical inclusiveness. Prostitutes, tax collectors, the poor, the moral failures, these are all who Jesus welcomed and who were drawn to Jesus. Do you remember Zacchaeus? The wee little man was he. Zacchaeus was a tax collector robbed and stole money. He was despised. And as Jesus was coming through town, Zacchaeus climbs up into a tree and Jesus calls out to him, Zacchaeus, come. Come. And and Jesus goes and eats in Zacchaeus' home. It's the call of Jesus, come. That's what he said in Matthew 11, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus didn't enter this world to condemn the world, but to save it. Every other faith and worldview is a call to work harder, to try more, to be better. And Christianity says, come. Come, all you who are sinners. Come, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it is this grace that constitutes a church that looks nothing like the world has ever seen. When the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus' followers at Pentecost, he brought the church together, rich and poor, Men and women, black, brown, and white. One beautiful, diverse family who have in common their need of God's grace and Jesus as their Savior. Christianity is radically inclusive while holding to the truth of Christ who lived, died, and rose. And through faith in Him, by His grace, our lives are changed and the world will be changed. No matter where you are on your journey, hope you know you're welcome here. You can be honest. We're going to be honest about the truth that we hold to. While we pray that we are a church of great humility that moves out to heal the world and are radically inclusive. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do that in us. Make us a people that are truly humble. Any arrogance, would you, would you get rid of it? Lord, would you make us a people that move out into the world to see the healing that Christ brings? Would we engage with purpose and with mission and intention? Would we not sit passively but actively because of what Jesus has accomplished and what he is bringing in his kingdom? And Lord, would we be a people that are radically inclusive, welcoming all? We don't come into this place because we've got it together. We don't come because we look good or smell good or have done good this past week. We come into this place because we're broken and we need you to pour out your love and grace in us each and every Sunday, each and every day. So make us a welcoming place, a welcoming community. Thank you that you've been with us and you promise to continue to be with us as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.